Take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 5 with me if you would. As you're turning there, I'll tell you about one of my uncles who went to be with the Lord a few years ago now, but when I was growing up, my Uncle Bill was uh, one of those larger-than-life guys. He had, had been one of the survivors of the Korean War Incheon Reservoir uh, situation, one of the worst military situations of certainly of that conflict and maybe of all of them, but uh, he had been one of those few who made it out of there. And uh, as I was growing up, he was this huge man and handled himself in such a way that made little boys and girls cower before him. And that's how I treated him most of the time. Well, uh, it was in January, and uh, a number of years ago now, our family lived in Central Texas in the town of Ballinger, and we received a phone call that informed us that my mother's father had passed away. He had been a district fire chief in Houston for many years, and they were expecting this huge funeral with all of the bells and whistles of the fire department. And um, so our family decided, you know, to get as quick as we could, we got everything together and we started towards Houston out of central Texas. And it was one of those weeks like we're having now where certain parts of the state were just iced in. And so as a family, we had to travel through that situation. We finally got into Houston, and as we got to Houston, uh, it started to snow. And it was one of those snowstorms, the rare events in this part of the world. Uh, but in that particular one, there was significant snowfall, and it accumulated to the point that it gave all of us cousins something to do while the adults were inside doing all the funeral reminiscing and all of that. And I've always been the baby of, our, of my mom's side of the family, which means that I got picked on a lot and I got to do all of the dirty work when we got into trouble, which was the case on this particular weekend because of all of the snow. You know, when you get significant snowfall like that, for kids, there's only, snowball fights only go so far. And then you need a little more out of the snow. So what I'm about to say, kids, if it ever snows around here, do not do this, all right? Don't do it. We did. And that is, we stopped throwing snowballs at each other, and we started throwing snowballs at passing cars. <clears throat> now, my, the place we were staying, my mom's sister lived in Pasadena, and they lived in a part of Pasadena where it was, a, you know, a bunch of houses, but they, they lived on one of the main feeder streets in that subdivision. And so even though the weather was bad, there were still a significant number of cars that were driving by. And so after dark, after we got through playing snowball fights with each other, we started doing this. And my job as the baby cousin, uh, I don't know, James, what's the statute of limitations on this? Should I just stop talking right now? I'm good. Okay. All right, so um, my job as the baby cousin was to go a couple of houses down from where all the real work was being done because there was a curve, and my job was to go down there, and when there was a car coming, I was supposed to signal to everybody that they should be ready, all right? And so when a car would come, I'd run across the yard, and I'd yell at them, there's a car coming, or something like that. And so that's rocking along, and we're having lots of fun, and several cars stopped, which made the adrenaline just go even higher. And uh, so in one of these cases, I came running across the yard. 
there's a car coming. And as I stepped into across the driveway of the next door neighbors into our yard, I looked up and there in the center of the driveway was my Uncle Bill and all the cousins circled around him and he was getting after it with them. I'm not going to tell you, I was old enough to know words I shouldn't speak. I'm not going to tell you what I said, but what I thought was, uh-oh, somebody's going to die now. I want you to take that kind of situation and let's pull it into our Bible study this morning. Have you ever had an uh-oh moment with God? When God kind of shows up in a way that you maybe weren't expecting him and you know that everything is about to change because of that. That's what we find in the passage we're looking at today. Jesus still on the loose. Now I say it that way because I want us to get a full picture and the all that comes with it of what's going on in first century Jewish life at that time because they have a nice, comfortable kind of religion about them. They're kind of like us. There was that set of people that didn't care too much about it, but there was another set that held on to it very dearly and another pet that enfor- another group that, that enforced it significantly. But they had this nice, comfortable religion that they had been practicing for generations. Jesus comes into that and he gets messy. It's, it's, it's like, well, as we find our way through the book of Luke, we're going to find that it's like these religious leaders all of a sudden are going, ah, this, something's got to stop this guy. So in the early stages of that, and Jesus is working his way into the early part of his ministry, and he's on the loose, he's, he's wreaking havoc with their system, and he's healing people. And he's casting demons out of people and he's calling out these fishermen to this incredible catch of fish and all of that stuff's going on. And now in this moment, Luke chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 27, uh, there's a couple of uh uh-oh moments here. And uh, that's kind of an instructive thing for us because the reality is whenever he shows up, it's always an uh uh-oh moment for us. Let me show you two different examples of that in this passage. We read in verse 27, After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So here's the first uh uh-oh moment. And it happens for Levi. And and it's basically it's one of those uh uh-oh things are going to change now kind of moments for him. I find Jesus doing something here that he seems to love to do with us. And that is he just kind of interrupts what's going on. Levi has his life in order. His business is going the way he wants it to go. Things are rocking along. He gets up that morning. He goes to work. 
And Jesus just kind of has this way of showing up and interrupting it, and everything changes when that happens. That happens with us, it happened with him, and with that comes this crisis for Levi. Let's make sure we get the background on this, because Levi, it says here, is a tax collector. Now, we know of other places in Scripture, in the Gospels especially, where tax collectors are mentioned, and, and we find based on those things, that there's a couple of different kinds of tax collectors. There are those who are the chief, you know, like the ones in charge. They're the office managers, uh, if you will. And then there's other guys, and Levi is one of the other guys. He doesn't have his own tax collection business. He just works for this set of people. And maybe the set of people is important that we get that because they're collecting taxes for the Romans. That's how that worked. The Romans were the ones who conquered Israel and the people of God there. And so they're the ones in charge. And part of the way they would do that is they would put out bids for a particular area and say, okay, who wants to be tax collection in this area? Uh, And then people could bid on the job. And here's how that worked. If they said, I'm going to give you X number of, now we'll use our terms in dollars, They had to pay that to the Roman government. If they got the bid, they got the position. They had to fulfill what they said they would pay. But on top of that, anything beyond that that they gathered, they could keep. So Levi is one of these guys in that particular job, and it's at a particular place where it would have been very public. You see, this part of, uh, geographically speaking, this part of their country is that sort of a crossroads. There's two Roman provinces here, and so people traveling from one into the next would have had to pay tax, but it's also a major thoroughfare for international travel back in those days and even today because this is at the north end of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Capernaum, and people coming from Jerusalem up, instead of going through all the hill country and all the hard way to travel, many times would drop down to, geographically drop down to the Jordan River, and go north, right next to the Sea of Galilee. It's easier to travel that way. There's water there, all that kind of stuff. People coming from Egypt would have come by the Mediterranean Sea all the way up to a certain point, then they would have cut across. There's kind of like a pass, if you will, through the hill country, and it dumps right into this area. And then from there, going on further up, goes to Damascus in modern-day Syria. So it was an ancient travel route, as much as it was in this day, and it's a great place if you're collecting taxes to stick a toll booth. And there you find Levi. Now what comes with that, all the stuff that I just said, it's important that we recognize something about who this guy is. Because Levi, as a tax collector, would have been one of the marginalized people, one of the, um, um, how would we say this? The kind of guy we love to hate. Because he's in collusion with the enemy. He's collecting taxes for the Romans. He's not one of us. We don't like him. Might or might not have even been from this area. But there was just a stigma that came with all of that. And so Levi's at work on this particular day. And Jesus shows up. And as Jesus is known to do, he did it with Simon Peter. He's done it... Countless times since then in Levi's life, when Jesus shows up, everything changes. Jesus seems to like to interrupt our plans. 
with his own. You ever known that to be true in the lives of people? One of the great Baptist preachers of history had this occur to him. Well, not exactly, but sort of. This is one of those preacher stories. It's not the kind that, you know, the preacher makes up so that he can manipulate emotions. This is a real life story about a preacher named George W. Truett, one of the greats of Baptist history. And he had plans as a young man. He was one of the brainiacs of the group. You know, he's always having these big plans. And he wanted to be an attorney. And his plan was to go through law school and do some things like that and move on with his life. But he was at church one day and one of those old, crusty, salt-of-the-earth kind of church people, a deacon in this particular case, heard Truett speak and he went up to him and he said, we must ordain you to the gospel ministry and we must do it today. That wasn't Truett's plan at all. He wasn't interested in doing that at all. He had his own plans. He wanted to go finish school and he wanted to be an attorney and make a difference in the world. And so he said, no, you got the wrong guy. I'm not going to do that. This deacon would not take no for an answer. And he pushed him again and he said, no, you don't understand. As a church, we see the hand of God on you. We must do it and we must do it now. Truett said, I'm telling you, I am not your guy. I am not interested. No. Before the day was over, he was an ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he went on to be one of the key figures in God's kingdom work during his lifetime. He hadn't planned on it. It wasn't his goal. It just seems that God interrupted his pattern that day. And everything changed. You ever known anybody like that? Had a confrontation with this guy named Jesus and everything changed. I knew a guy. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. But when he was roughly 50 years old, a truck driver, a guy who owned a trucking company, his first name was Jimmy. He was a hard-living, hard-drinking got no time for God kind of guy. And one day, somebody showed up and told him about the saving power of Jesus Christ and the love that he had for him as a sinner. And Jimmy, in that moment, not anticipating anybody coming to see him and certainly not anticipating what was about to happen, gave his life to Jesus Christ and everything changed for him from that day forward. Immediately, he gave up alcohol. He had been such a hard drinker. He said that it was nothing for him to go through a fifth of whiskey every day. And somehow God delivered him from all of that. And at that moment in time when he met Jesus for the first time, it was an uh uh-oh, everything changes now moment for him. After that, Jimmy didn't see anybody but that he was going to tell them about Jesus Christ. This guy could talk to anybody in the world. But when he came to know Christ, all of a sudden he had a message when he talked to anybody in the world. And it changed everything about his life. It changed his family life. He had gone through marriages. It changed his family life. It changed his life with his son who came to know Christ later because of him, his business associates, the guys that he used to drink and gamble and party with and all that kind of stuff, all of a sudden now Jimmy would go to them and he'd say, I got something to tell you that'll change your life because it changed mine. 
Jesus specializes in that. When he comes to the door, it's an uh uh-oh moment because everything changes. So let me just stop for a second. It's always real comfortable for us to talk about other people who have those experiences. Let me just, let's just make sure we wear what's ours. Because the reality here is Jesus shows up at Levi's doorstep and everything changes. You notice what it says there? That Levi got up and he left everything behind so that he could follow Jesus. How long has it been in your life since Jesus showed up in such a way that things changed for you? One of the, one of the unfortunate realities for us is it, it seems that many Christian people have an experience with God at some point. And if I say to you, what's God doing in your life? You can go back to a point maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 50 years ago and you can say, Jesus miraculously saved me. And that's great. He's good at that. But if I ask you and I push you, what's he doing in your life today? How long has it been for you since everything changed for you because Jesus interrupted your plans and your schedule? I'll say it this way. This is the way it got me into trouble. One time when I was preaching a different sermon, different passage of scripture, the same basic emphasis, but here it is. How long has it been since God took you to a whole new level in your ability to trust him? How long has it been since Jesus interrupted your schedule and everything changed? It's an uh-oh moment. There's another thing about this I want to show you before we get to the second uh-oh moment of this, but um, this one's kind of lost in English. And so I want to kind of step back a little bit and allow me to step out of English for a little bit and give you a little bit of the original language here. If you'll notice in verse 27, it says, After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, the word saw there is a real kind of generic English word that helps us say, yeah, okay, he saw him. Like, you know, I saw the bluebell at the grocery store. I was just passing by and I just saw it. It just happened. I just happened to be on the bluebell aisle and there it is, heaven in a bowl. (laughs) The casual glance, the... The uh, happenstance as we walk by and we see something or somebody. That's the way we take the word saw. And as we look at this, the picture that we get is Jesus is passing through. He looks over and he sees the tax collector. And he says, hey, you'll do. Follow me. Unfortunately for us in English, that's not this word here. The original language, the word that we have here is one that kind of implies for us, it's rich with the idea that Jesus stopped what he was doing and he began to observe Levi. He watched him. Now that's a little creepy for us when people, you know, I'm watching you. We used to say that to our kids. My intent with that with my children was, don't you dare get out of line because you're going to get hammered if you do. I'm watching you. That's not the intent of this word here. Maybe we could pull and catch the sense of it by saying Jesus studied Levi. Here's why I think that's important. Remember what I said. Levi, as a tax collector, would have been one of those people in Jewish society that nobody liked. They were the people that everybody loved to hate. They were the nobodies because of the choices that they made. Oh, they had plenty of money. 
But that was part of the problem. That's why we don't like them, because they got our money. That's Levi. The guy left out. The guy that wouldn't have gotten invited to your Sunday school class party because he's one of those people. And yet somehow Jesus sees him. But it's not that Jesus just kind of catches him as he's walking by. Jesus stops and we don't know if it's just for that moment or if it's this ongoing thing that Jesus has been watching him day in and day out. But what we do know is that it says that Jesus observed him and the response to that was, hey man, why don't you come with me? I think that's important because we live in communities that are full of people who are marginalized and they're just nothing. Now, we wouldn't say that and you might not say that to them, but they believe that. And the reason they believe that is because people treat them like that. There's nobody. If you happen to be one of those people and you walked in here and the whole world is on your back. It doesn't seem like anybody ever sees you. You can take from this passage the great news that Jesus always sees people. When I was in youth ministry, this is a long time ago now, I went to one of those conferences um, because I knew that I was not very good at what I was doing. I wanted to be better. And so I went to one of these conferences uh, and this guy was teaching us some things, and he came to kind of this point, and he said, you know, one of the things you have to realize about teenagers, and this was different day and age, but I think it holds true today, you got to realize that there are those teenagers that everybody knows, everybody reaches to. Captain of the football team, head cheerleader, people in the, you know, you know, Flag captain or drill team captain. There are those kids in schools that everybody knows. But there are also those kids in school that nobody knows. They're the zeros at the school. They're the ones who are marginalized. They just don't count. And he said, just to help you understand this, he he said, I want you to go watch a movie. And it was difficult even then to find it. I don't know how old the movie was even back then. I don't know if you can find it at all. But the name of the movie was Cypher in the Snow. C-I-P-H-E-R. Cypher. You know what a cypher is? It's a nothing. It'd be a zero, but a zero has too much value to be a cypher. The story is of this kid. I think it was a girl, if I remember right. Who was found laying dead in the snow at a bus stop. And nobody knew who she was. Nobody could put a name to her. Nobody could identify her. Nobody could say, hey, yeah, I saw her at school or whatever. She was a nothing. Before it was all said and done, they found out that she was at school with people and she gotten on the bus for years with people that she was so much of a nothing that people never even noticed she was around. Our churches are full of people who believe that that's them. Nobody ever sees me. Nobody cares about my problems. I was gone six months from church and nobody bothered to call. That's because I'm nothing. I don't count. Get the word here. And make sure we get the context right. 
Jesus is dealing with a guy that the rest of society, they didn't think he was a nothing. They thought he was less than that. I would have nothing to do with a tax collector. That's the guy Jesus is talking to. And it says that he observes him. He studies him. And then he says, you come with me. That's the invitation that Jesus makes to every one of us. There are no nothings in God's world. There's nobody who is a nothing with Jesus, including you. I like the fact that he included that for us in this passage. Here's another uh uh-oh moment. This is the one that's kind of like I was with my uncle. This is the one that says, "Uh uh-oh, there's going to be trouble now. Uh, And let's go back to the scene for a second. I've told you before, I like to inject myself into some of these Bible stories. It helps me to kind of get a feel for some of the reality of what's there. So let's do that again very quickly. First of all, here's Jesus. And he's on the loose and he's wreaking havoc wherever he goes. And so he's out in the countryside and, and his fame is being spread abroad. He's healing people, casting out demons. This miraculous catch of fish when he calls Peter. And by the way, that's another thing that they catch with that. These guys who used to be some of the main fishermen around here, all of a sudden they're not doing that anymore. They're walking around with this guy. And all of that is injected into this situation. It's not happening in a vacuum. Levi goes to work and all of this stuff's been happening around him. And so he hears this. And now all of a sudden, Jesus, this same Jesus, shows up at his place of business. And then on top of that, you have this feast that happens. It's significant. Everything changes, remember? It's significant that Levi leaves his place of work there. He leaves it behind. But then that very day, he goes and he offers a feast where Jesus is the guest of honor. Make sure we catch this. He leaves his old life behind and he comes to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but he is intent on bringing as many people with him from his old life into the new. Now, there's a message for us in that, but that's him. And so they have this feast, and feasts in this particular point of, of time, uh, in that particular region especially, were, were big deals because everybody didn't have the money to be able to have food enough for a bunch of friends and people to come over, especially not some dignitary like Jesus. And so Levi takes his own resources, and he brings them into this, and he brings all of his old friends in. And what happens with that in those small villages like that is other people would see the commotion. They'd want to know what's going on. It's kind of like the red carpet at the Academy Awards, but not quite. Everybody wants to see. Who's going to be there? And the buzz goes through. Jesus, oh, there's Jesus. So more of the village people come around. They can't get into. They're not invited to the feast, but they're hanging around the outside watching what's going on. And it's into that context that we find the next part of this whole thing. It's not just that Levi gets called, but in the feast that is thrown for Jesus by Levi, now you have these watchdogs who show up. You remember that discussion last week? The Pharisees. These are the ones who they take it as their own personal role to make sure that everybody dresses appropriately and does the right things and doesn't do the wrong things and they are the watchdogs over the religion of their day. 
Put yourself into that situation and you're one of these new followers of Jesus and you remember what happened, what we talked about last week and this paralytic gets healed and so there's this kind of a a confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities. Uh Uh-oh, the Pharisees are here. Wonder what's going to happen next. (laughs) Maybe now's a good time for us to get a full handle on who the Pharisees really were. We talked about that some already. We're going to find them all the way through Luke's account of the life of Jesus. These Pharisees were given the name Pharisees because it means separated. The separated ones, very literally. The interesting thing is that the Pharisees didn't give themselves this name. This name was given to them by regular people, and it was not a compliment. The deal was these Pharisees were so intent and so, oh, you got to cross your T's and dot your I's exactly right. They were so rigid that finally they just began to separate themselves from people because people are dirty and messy And it's just easier for us to be what God called us to be if we don't have to deal with those dirty, messy people. And so the dirty, messy people started calling them Pharisees, the separated ones, but probably with a snarl like, oh, Pharisees. That's the scene. And so Jesus and his new tax collector disciple And all of his dirty, messy friends are having dinner together. And the Pharisees don't like it one little bit. That's kind of how watchdogs tend to be. Even in the modern church. The church of our day, the Pharisees, or we have different names for them now. But they, these are the watchdogs of churches. We talked about it last week. But they, they always have something they don't like about what people are doing. Especially when Jesus is involved in it. <laughs> they want to enforce their rules. Now hear me very closely now. We're almost done. They want to enforce their rules. And they don't care who gets hurt in the process. So put yourself back into this situation one more time. Here's Jesus, and he steps into this guy's life, and everything changes for him. And he wants to bring his friends with him to meet this Jesus who changed his life. And the religious crowd, the separated ones, they don't like it at all. So they start to grumble. And they grumble about what's wrong with this, because What's wrong with this is what's always wrong with people, and that is we're supposed to be clean and holy, and that means we don't eat with dirty people. (laughs) Unless you're Jesus, of course. You notice who those Pharisees are grumbling to? This is typical of church Pharisees. Their problem is with Jesus, but they go to the disciples because they learned last week's sermon that Jesus bites back. 
And so they go to the disciples. What are you all doing eating with these sinners? And I can just see those Pharisees as they interact with these followers of Jesus. These guys are fishermen. And a few others. Luke hasn't formalized that for us yet. He will. But in all of that, Jesus gets in on the conversation. One of the things that Jesus does is he exposes just how wrong it is to think like a Pharisee. You notice what he says there? I didn't come for the healthy people. I came for the sick people. Now, there's a barb in that, okay? Because the Pharisees are the ones who believe they were healthy. Everybody should be like we are. That's another kind of characteristic of modern-day Pharisees. Everybody should be as good as I am. Everybody should think like I think. Everybody should do the way I think it ought to be done. And so Jesus says, I I didn't come for you. If you are not able to need help, you don't need me. All all across America today are churches that I think Jesus says exactly that to them. The way you have decided to do it, you don't really need me. So I'll go to another church and I'll deal with those who recognize they do. Let me tell you something. Some of the worst, most frightening things that we could ever hear from God to us as a church is, you act like you don't need me, so I'll just go somewhere else and use people who do. So here's the catch for us. And for you in your individual life, I think. One of the key elements of the way these watchdogs, these Pharisees thought, and the same for us, is there is this tendency to draw lines. And these lines separate us. The nature of their whole name emphasizes that these lines separate us, but sometimes those lines get lost, and so Pharisees tend to want to build walls where those lines are. And then it becomes something where we lose sight totally of what God's called us to be, which is salt and light. And so we build walls on top of our lines and we hunker down behind our walls. But the nature of life is, the nature of the way Jesus operates is people are drawn to him, which means they start coming to the walls that we've put up until such time they decide they don't need that anymore. And then they stop coming at all. We're so entrenched in 21st century thought and Christianity that we have to get behind our walls and protect ourselves and protect our families that we start building sentry towers on those walls and we shoot anybody who threatens our nice, holy, safe environment to do church in. Too many churches in America, there's just no room for dirty people. It's just too messy. I'll give a couple of examples of that very quickly and we'll be done. First of all, it comes out of our family life. This is really kind of a funny example and it has a great ending. That's why I don't mind telling you. Um, many parents here, so you don't have to agree with me. That's fine. I'm just going to tell you how we did it with our kids. Okay? Uh, with our boys especially, we decided that we weren't going to fight dumb battles with them. Okay. Actually, I learned this from one of my bosses at one point. He had a great kid. He was in my youth group. Uh, this kid would come and his hair would be, 
I mean, weird stuff. And I went to his dad one day, and I was, we were talking about something. His dad said, look, I decided it's only a haircut. If the biggest problem I have with my son is him wearing a stupid hairdo, he said, I'm willing to have that. So I thought, that makes sense. So as our kids got older, with my boys especially, we didn't care what their hair was. As long as they kept it clean. Okay, you got to wash it every day. I don't want any of that greasy, nasty stuff. Okay? So they wore some crazy hairdos. And Brandon, as a teenager, got to a point, and the hairstyle at the time was you use four gallons of gel and you stick your hair straight up in the air. Okay, remember those days? Some of you, when you had hair, you had the same hairdo, didn't you? And so that was Brandon. He's our oldest son. He's the quiet one, okay? And uh, one day at church, now Brandon was running sound. I said this earlier, so I almost sat here. One of the most um, neglected and unappreciated groups of workers in the church are the people who run the technical stuff in the back. Uh, and I want to say to you guys, thank you for what you do. We have a lot of people who help with all of that stuff. Uh, day in, day out, they're here. They do stuff. Nobody knows it unless it's not right. And then everybody wants to know how come they can't get it right. I appreciate what you guys do so much, right? And my son was in the group as a teenager. That church believed that teenagers actually had something to offer in church. And so they, he liked sound stuff. And so they said, here, come on in. You'll be on the tech crew. So he was running the soundboard one Sunday. And this lady, one of the Pharisees, the watchdogs of the church, came up to Teresa during the welcome time while we're worshiping and said to Teresa, that boy yours, she's pointing back at him, right, with his hair. That boy of yours, I bet you he gives you trouble, doesn't he? Let me tell you something. Whatever else you want to say about that Pharisee, she was not smart enough to avoid going to my wife with that comment. (laughs) Teresa has good wisdom about handling people. If you're just looking for a confrontation, she will oblige you. But she seasons it with grace. Most of the time. She said something like this to that lady. No, I love his hairdo. <laughs> well, that, that's a disarming. And first of all, the lady's going, uh-oh. <clears throat> and then Teresa said, you know what? He's one of the most loving kids. And we're so grateful that he wants to serve God and do what he's doing and plug in at the church. And he's just a wonderful young man. To which the other lady went, oh, well... <laughs> Okay. But that gave her the freedom then to develop a friendship with our son. And to this day, they're good friends. She's 80-something years old now. And he moved away. And yet they still have a friendship between them. Because finally, that Pharisee was able to see beyond the mess as she perceived it. There's another church. I went to a conference one time. It was put on by a group of people who understand that the church of America in the 21st century is very much in danger of being relegated to having no influence in society. And so they're calling us back as churches to basic biblical functioning, building disciples rather than just throwing church. And in this, one of the speakers there was a black lady who was from the Houston area. I don't know where she's from, but she and her husband serve as ministers in the Methodist church. And she had been given 
the responsibility of going to a downtown church in Houston, Methodist church, that was actually dying. It was kind of one of those death sentence assignments from the Methodist hierarchy. Just go down there, you know, all the people, that church was built on big Houston money and, you know, the, the social, all of that kind of stuff that came with what used to be downtown Houston. And now, if you haven't been down there in a while, uh, first of all, ladies, don't go by yourself. And secondly, um, there's not a whole lot of money in the home part of that area of town. Maybe there's still money in the office buildings across the street, but down in that area, it's a very depressed area. And she received the assignment to go down there and be lead minister in that church. So she goes in and she sees we've got more building than they could possibly pay for just for the upkeep. She's dealing with the issues of it and she starts talking to people in the church. Well, how, what happened? Where, where are all the people? Because right across the street are where people live, but nobody comes here. All we have is a dying white church in inner city Houston. And they said, well, you know, the people with money, they go out into the suburbs. They don't want to come down here into this mess to do church. As a matter of fact, one of the things that really bothered them were some of the messy people, the street people of downtown Houston, would wander into church every once in a while wanting to come to church. And we can have that, can we? And her response was, tell you what, let's do. So she began to tell us how that group of leadership in that church made the decision to operate the way Jesus did, which is to include the dirty, messy people that the Pharisees would never have. So they started going out to the underpasses where the homeless population in the city of Houston lives. And they would pull them into church. Let's worship. But you know what happens when you get that group of people? You get homeless people. They don't smell good most of the time. You know why? Because they're homeless. Hello. They can't take showers. They can't wash their clothes. We certainly don't want those people in church. Do we? So she went and got them. And they started coming by the hundreds at first, then by the thousands. But you know what happens when you get homeless people? They smell bad, but they also, they're hungry. They're all the time hungry. You know why? They're homeless. Hello. So they started feeding them. Hundreds. Then they started realizing As they would feed these people and bring them in, they would have church together or take church out to where they were, around their trash cans, underneath underpasses, doing church with dirty people. The Pharisees would never do that because they're unclean. Then they started realizing that these homeless people had all kinds of psychological issues. You see, the reality is to do church the way Jesus models it for us, it's just dirty. It's messy. And it's much easier for us to come into our church buildings, big, build big walls, thick walls, with sentry towers and people shooting down on those like zombies who would come into where we are. And feel good because we've protected our families and our children our way of life 
you have to realize that that is one of the most unloving, anti-Christian approaches to doing life and doing church. In the name of saving my kid to sacrifice 400 others does not please God. But if you like being a separate one, the Pharisees of Levi's circle, maybe it's acceptable there. I started to entitle this sermon, Who's Not Welcome at Crestwood? I decided not to do that because I was afraid somebody might give me an answer. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask you to complete the message in our hearts. Help us to see the truth of who we are and how we function. For those who are here today and they feel like the dirty people of this world and religion and church people have held them off at arm's length and said, you're just not good enough to be part of us. Father, please, please, in your powerful grace, overcome the problems of your people. And help those people to see that you are still the Jesus who reaches out and says, Hey, I've been watching you, and you need to be one of us. Save them to yourself is our prayer. And Father, for the rest of us, help us to be brutally honest with ourselves as it relates to how we function and how we plan and how we work our way and give us hearts that break for those people who are marginalized and not acceptable and dirty and messy and make them part of us is our prayer in Jesus' name.